Let's go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 24. We're going to finish up the book today. It's been a long time. And then next week we'll be getting our new series on the book of Acts. Looking forward to that. Dustin and I will be doing some co-teaching on that. I may have shared this story before. It's hard to know. I've been preaching for some 30 some odd years and it's hard to remember what you share and what you don't share, especially as you get older. When I was in seminary, I lived with a friend of mine. We lived in a trailer house. And at some point, I, I think it was his sister's boyfriend, soon-to-be fiancé or something, came to live with us. He was a young kid. I think he was 18 or 19, fresh out of, fresh out of high school, and he was going to come to college at Grace. And um, let's just say he was challenged when it came to cooking. I don't think Mama ever taught him anything. And so um, he relied a lot on prepackaged foods and things like that. And so there's one particular day I came home and he was making his dinner. And I was sitting, I think, in the living room area. And, I, and he was in the kitchen and I heard him open up the oven and I heard some loud sigh and something like, oh no, kind of a thing. And I'm like, what's wrong? And he's like, I don't, I don't, I don't know what I did. And so I got up and I walked into the kitchen <laughs> He had a cookie sheet that he'd taken out of the oven, and there was this glob, this mess that was all over it, and it kind of run down the sides and into the oven. It was what used to be a chicken pot pie, but it didn't look like a chicken pot pie anymore. And the reason is, he didn't cook it in the tin. So I asked him, I said, where's the tin? And he's like, the what? And I said, the tinfoil tin that the pot pie comes in. He said, well, I took it out of that. I didn't know you were supposed to cook it in that. So it didn't have a crust on the bottom. It was one of those that just had the crust on the top. And so as it thawed in the oven, it just oozed everywhere. And the thing is, that wasn't the first or the, the, the last time that happened. I mean, with the pot pie it was, because I think he learned his lesson. But I came home another time, and sitting on the counter was a pizza where he had forgotten to take the plastic wrap off of it and the cardboard underneath it. Because the directions didn't say to do that, apparently. These are two examples. This is going somewhere, believe me. These are two examples of doing the right thing the wrong way. And it doesn't always end well. Today our passage actually is really about that to some degree. It's doing the right thing the wrong way. We see actually biblical examples of this, don't we? We see Cain. Cain brought a sacrifice to the Lord. But what happened? Well, he did the right thing. He brought a sacrifice, but he did it in the wrong way, apparently. Abraham and Sarah. Well, they tried to fulfill God's promise, right? They tried to do the right thing in the wrong way by Sarah giving Hagar, trying to have another baby. And, well, Lord, you can just use the guy that we produced here. But that wasn't the right way to do it. God had promised Abraham he would provide him with an heir. What about Jacob and Rebekah? They wanted to receive Isaac's blessings, so they deceived him to take Esau's inheritance. Well, ultimately, Esau's inheritance was supposed to go to Jacob, but in God's timing and God's way, but they came up with some scheme, so they wanted to do the right thing, but they did it in the wrong way. What about David? We have this example of David using this ox cart to traffic the ark. You remember that? They just threw the ark on a cart, and what happened? The ark goes to fall, somebody reaches out, touches it, dies, everybody's angry, not why. Right thing, moving the ark, 
the wrong way. We're going to see that kind of reflected today. Each of those have that same theme in common, doing the right thing, but ignoring the Lord's commands and instructions on how it's supposed to be done. Today we're going to see another example of that, and it actually has some deadly consequences. We're in um, 2 Samuel chapter 24, and we're going to see that David actually sins by taking an improper census. An improper census. Look at verses 1 through one through 9. Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and it incited David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. The king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go now through all of Israel, to all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and register the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as there are, while the eyes of my lord the king are still, are still see. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to register the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and camped in Aor, the right side of the city that was in the middle of the valley of Gad and toward Jazer. Then they came to Gilead, into the land of Tadam Hadshi, and they came to Danjan and around Sidon. And they came to the fortress of Tyr, and all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites, and they went out from the south of Judah to Beersheba. So when they had gone about through the whole land, they came to, the Jerusalem, they came to Jerusalem at the end of the ninth month and twenty days. And Joab gave the number of the registration of the people to the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. Well, there's actually there's two accounts of this, and the accounts differ slightly. The other one is in First Chronicles chapter 21. We would call it a parallel passage. Here it says that the Lord, and this is where the, the greatest discrepancy is going to be between the two texts, and I'll explain it here in a second. Right here it says that the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David to then take up this census. Some here say he incited David. I think that's a mistranslation. Um, the word for he and it is the same in the Hebrew text. So if your that translation of the Bible here says that the Lord incited David, I think it's an improper translation. Most translations say it, meaning the anger of the Lord itself is what incited David, not that the Lord deliberately incited him. In Second Chron- First Chronicles chapter 21, it says, Then Satan stood up and moved David to number Israel. Now here's what's interesting about that. The Hebrew word for Satan is actually the word for adversary. That's what it means. Adversary. In most instances of the Old Testament, it doesn't have the definite article in front of it, the. And it refers to simply adversaries in a general sense. Okay? Whenever you see the article, the, in front of adversary, it's usually a reference to Satan, and that happens a couple of times. But not here. Here, in First Chronicles chapter 21, it is likely not Satan, but rather an enemy, an adversary, another army, that had risen up against Israel. That makes the most sense contextually, and it actually sort of fits what happens here. So when we combine both 2 Samuel chapter 24 and 1 Chronicles chapter 21, what we probably have is this. It suggests that the Lord may have been angry with Israel for some undisclosed sin here. It doesn't tell us what that sin is, but the Lord obviously is angry. It tells us that in verse 1 of our chapter here. He's angry with them probably for some sin they've committed. 
And so he rises up an enemy against Israel to judge Israel. We see that in the Old Testament on numerous occasions. We saw it all through the book of Judges. We see it with, with um, some of the kings as we look through First and Second Kings. The Lord would often use the enemies of Israel to chastise Israel when they would sin. And so likely what happens here is that there's some unannounced sin. We're not told what it is. The Lord is angry with Israel, so he raises up an enemy of Israel to chastise them. When David sees that, his response is, do a census of a military. How many men do I have to fight my adversary? And so David is incited, I guess. He's angry that this enemy has risen up against him. And so it causes him to go out and to take a census of his military. Now we know that David's actions here are clearly sin because the text kind of lays that out for us. Look down at verse 3. It says, But Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord are still still able to see. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? Joab obviously has a problem with this. As wicked as Joab could be, he seems to understand the Old Testament here. He knew that what David was doing is something that would ultimately displease the Lord. In 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 3, Joab actually refers to it as a cause of guilt for Israel. Same chapter, 1 Chronicles 21, says that what David did was displeasing to him. In fact, if you look down at verse 10, David's heart is troubled after he did it. David even recognized it as sin. In fact, in verse 17 of our chapter, we'll get to this a little later, David says, I'm the one who sinned. So what happens here is David decides to take a census. And clearly the text indicates that it's wrong, that it's a sin. And the question might be why. Why is that a sin? Well, the Old Testament, specifically Exodus chapter 30, I'll let you read that on your own if you want. Exodus chapter 30, starting at verse 11, lays out how to take a proper census. And God gives some very specific rules. Only men were to be counted, and only those 20 years of age and older who were able to go out to war. Now that excludes those who had been recently married. So it's not just anybody over 20, but specifically only those who are 20 or older who could go out to war could be counted in a census. All the tribes were supposed to be included in this, except for the Levites. They were to be prohibited because they couldn't serve in the military. So when you did a census, you couldn't count any men among the Levites. Now, in addition to that, any man who was counted had to provide a half shekel, a payment to atone for any sin. And that was probably likely used to to possibly fund the military and military endeavors. So money had to be collected from these men as well. It was to be brought into the tent of meeting or the tabernacle as a donation, an atonement. And here's the thing. If these rules were not followed, the penalty would be a plague among the soldiers. You see, the purpose of the census was to determine military strength. And God said, there are specific rules that you will follow in scripting men into the military, a draft. Well, there are four military censuses mentioned in the Old Testament. The Lord didn't seem to have a problem with any of them except David's. So it wasn't wrong to take a military census. You could do the right thing, just not in the wrong way. And that appears to be what David did here. 
So the question is, why did God permit military census but not David's? What is it that David did wrong? Well, it gets a little tricky here. Some scholars suggest maybe it's because David didn't collect the shekel. There's no mention here of collecting the shekel, the payment. That's possible. Um, Nothing in the text indicates one way or another, but that's possible. Others suggest it might be because David's, David's motives were impure. Maybe there was some pride there. Maybe he was, you know, wanting to count his military to see if he could do it all on his own strength. There may be some sense of that. The Lord says he would fight for David. So maybe David's reaction to, you know, as soon as he sees these enemies, before he even goes to God and says, what's wrong? Why are, we, why are you bringing these enemies against us? The first thing he does is count his military. See how strong he is. I guess it's possible, but again, it's not really clear from the text if that's the cause or not. However, there, there are some things in the text that I think give us a better understanding of maybe what David had done. Look at verse 2. Notice that David commanded that he would go to all the tribes of Israel. And he even sort of mentions in this, Dan to Beersheba. In other words, he basically says, all the tribes from here to here, which gives an impression that David didn't leave any of the tribes out. Now remember what God's law says about the census? Who's to be excluded? The Levites. It doesn't appear in the text that David excludes the Levites. Rather, he says, go do it to all the tribes. The only reason you might do that is you've either forgotten the law or because you think you can use the extra manpower. Now think about this for a moment. Not every Levite served as a priest. They were part of the priestly line, but they rotated through shifts and other things. And it may have been David could have easily thought, you know what, we'll take advantage of them. Now, Again, that's somewhat speculative, but... He does stress all the tribes and again adds to it from Dan to Beersheba. That may explain Joab's response. Why did Joab? Well, wait a minute. We can't do that. We also read in 1 Chronicles 21 that Joab refused to count the Levites. That's part of this. That's why I think this may be the case. But he also refused to count the Benjamites. And the text says that the king's command was abhorrent to David. In other words, David had told him to count all the tribes, and Joab said, wait a minute, I can't count the Levites, and I shouldn't count the Benjamites. Now, why are the Benjamites important there? Remember, the Benjamite tribes, all the men had pretty much been wiped out for a previous sin. And so the other tribes all kind of gave up men to sort of repopulate the Benjamites. They were still recovering from the devastation. So Joab, as he looked at the Benjamites, thought to himself, I can't include the Benjamites in the military census. They've already been devastated. And so David's command to include them was off-putting to Joab. What about 1 Chronicles 21, verse 7? It says that the Lord was displeased with this thing. It's likely referring to the fact that David included the Levites and the Benjamites in the census, which was a violation of the law, and it showed a tremendous lack of compassion. Now, maybe it was an oversight on, on David's part. Another thing in 1 Chronicles chapter 27 also says that the Lord was angry because Joab started to count those who were under the military age of 20. Did David tell him to exclude those men? It's unclear from the text, but it appears that David just said to go count, and it included the Levites, it included the Benjamites, it included even men who were really too young by the law to fight in the military. And it displeased the Lord. So there were probably two problems with David's census here. 
They included the tribes of Levi and Benjamin. But he counted those who were under, the year, or under 20 years of age as well. So what do we have here in the beginning part of this? As best we can say with the information we have, David took a census, which was okay to take, but he didn't do it in the right way. There were rules to be applied. Again, censuses were, were not wrong. There are many of them, at least four that we know of in the Old Testament, and the Lord doesn't seem to have a problem with them when, they're, when the rules are followed. So as I mentioned in the beginning of this, I think our takeaway, at least with this first part of it is, David set out to do the right thing in the wrong way. And it displeased the Lord because of it. Let's go on into verses 10 through 14. Now David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. That's another reason why I think that David maybe commanded Joab to do these things in not obeying the law, because he even admits to himself, I was foolish in what I did. It wouldn't have been foolish to follow the law. So he says, I've acted foolishly. When David arose in the morning, verse 11, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go speak to David. Thus says the Lord, I am offering you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I will do to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come upon you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there, be, shall, shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Remember the, remember the penalty for taking an improper sentence or census? It's plague and pestilence. That's what he's talking about here. So he basically says, do you want to have these three months of pestilence? He says, now consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. This is Gad speaking. Verse 14, then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So basically, Joab returns, David realizes his foolishness, and he confesses his sin to the Lord now for that. And the Lord allows David to pick which of the consequences... Israel is going to have to face. The first one is seven years of famine. Um, I think the NIV might say three years in the parallel passage here, and that might be what we call a scribal error. But seven years of famine is what one consequence would be. Three months of fleeing before their enemies. In other words, let those enemies come in, and the army will not be able to withstand that, and they would basically spend three months um, fleeing or fighting their enemies. Or... He could have three days of pestilence. What's that? COVID-19, yep. Not like our 11 months, right? So far, and counting. Now, it's not really stated why the Lord gave David this choice. It all seems a little bit strange, doesn't it? I mean, I don't remember the last time the Lord came to me and said, okay, what's it going to be, Mike? In fact, I don't think I ever remember my parents asking me, you know? So, what do we do this time? I'll give you a couple of options. You pick. Um, What's that? So you have some of those, you do that with your kids, he takes it right from the scriptures. I knew he was a godly man, right? Or you meant, you got some from your parents. I gotcha, all right. So it's not really clear. Some have speculated that this was a test for David, um, but again, that's speculation. Um, If he chose famine, think about this, if he chose famine, it might have affected all of Israel, but, you know, he's got his own storehouses of food. David probably would have been okay. The king and the temple are always protected. 
It's always the people that suffer, right? Look at what we're going through right now. Everything is shut down, but does Congress shut down? People lose their jobs, but does Congress lose their No. Okay? It's always, the rules apply to you, but they don't apply to me. You know? Kerry this week getting on his jet, flying up to Iceland to pick up his coveted climate award in his private jet. And people say, that's not right. Well, but for people like me... Okay, so some would argue that if David had chosen famine, it likely would have affected all of Israel, but he would have probably had his storehouses of food. That's possible. If he chose the second option, it would have led to a large number of military casualties, obviously, a lot of deaths. But again, depending on when that took place, David might very well have been protected from that, because remember earlier, David's own men said they didn't want him to go out and battle anymore. And so some have speculated if he would have chosen the second option, Others would have paid the price, but David would have been protected by not having to go out to war. Those are all possible. A third option, it's argued, is that the only one that truly would have affected David would be the pestilence. Because there's no hiding from that. We're all wearing masks, you know. They didn't have such luxuries back then. So by choosing the third option, it's argued that David revealed his selfish leadership. And that, that may, these all are possible. Um, this is just purely my opinion on this um, I think a more probable explanation is that the Lord made David choose the consequence as a means of accountability um, he was a king and part of what Israel's facing is a result of David's sin now they're responsible for their own sin because it says the Lord was angry with Israel we know there's sin there on Israel's part but David's sin became the catalyst for this And now Israel was going to pay the price for not just their own sin, but David's sin, which compounded it. And so having their their spiritual leader, having their king, have to pick the consequences is a form of accountability. It drives home, David, this was was you. And so uh, any one of the things we've shared so far may have been partly what was going on. God may have been testing David's heart a little bit. Which one of these are you going to choose? Which one's going to affect you and the others? And what are you willing to do here, David? But it could have also been simply the Lord's way of saying, David, you're the one I made responsible. You're going to pick the consequence. Sometimes that's not a bad thing. I wish I would have done that more with my own kids. Make them pick the consequence. Makes them take responsibility for it. And face it, none of these are good consequences. You know, Um, It's not like being told to go to your bedroom where you could sit and play video games. You know? So what happens? David chooses door number three. Pestilence. It's interesting a number of things that he does here. I want you to turn to First Chronicles chapter twenty one. First Chronicles chapter twenty one. I think it's verse twelve and thirteen. We'll start with verse 9. It says, So the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and speak to David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I will do to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Take your or take for yourself either three years of famine, and that's the, well, I say it might be a scribal error. Instead of saying seven years, it says three years of famine. Or three months to be swept away before your fo- foes, while the Lord... Or, I'm sorry, while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, even pestilence in the land, 
and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now therefore, consider what answer I shall return to him who sent me. So David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please, and here it is, let me fall into the hand of the Lord. For his mercies are very great, but don't let me fall into the hand of man. It's interesting how David refers to that as falling into the hand of the Lord. And the reason is, he recognizes it's the Lord's angel that will bring the pestilence. The first two that happen, the famine, you could just argue, eh, it just happens. The middle one, eh, the battles occur and it's the enemy's hand. But clearly that third, David says, that would be the Lord's specific doing. He would direct the pestilence. His angel would be there with his sword to bring about the anguish that was going to come upon them. And so David says, I'd rather place myself into the hands of the Lord than the enemy or the famine. He'd rather be in the Lord's hand under the Lord's judgment than he would under simply the natural consequences of the famine or the hand of his enemies. When we look at the Psalms, we kind of see why. Psalm 86, verse 15 says this, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious. You are slow to anger, and you are abundant in loving kindness and truth. Psalm 119, he says this, Great are your mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your ordinances. One last one, Psalm 145, verse 8. He says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. Why did David choose the third option? Because he recognized that even in the Lord's chastisement, even in the Lord's judgment, that the Lord would exercise mercy. That's always the case with the Lord. There's always that perfect balance of judgment or chastisement in his mercy. He doesn't delight in punishment. He delights in mercy and grace. And David recognized that even though he was about to face some pretty serious consequences of his sin, he was resigning himself to trust the Lord's mercy in doing that, recognizing that the Lord's judgment would be fair, would be measured appropriately. In other words, the consequence would fit the sin. And in fact, maybe even, how do I say this? Maybe not fit the consequences in that it might not be severe enough. It's much like with my own kids growing up. They, they, could, they may or may not even remember this. I, we would talk with them when we would, when we would discipline them. And there were times where we would choose not to exercise a particular judgment or consequence. And I would say, I'm going to exercise mercy at this moment. You deserve the judgment. You deserve the chastisement. But what I'm going to give to you is mercy right now. I'm going, to, I'm going to extend that to you in the hopes that that kindness will drive you towards repentance, as Paul says in the book of Romans. David recognized that about the Lord. And so he basically is going to fall into the hands of the Lord and say, I would much rather be judged by the Lord than judged by my enemies, or in some respects by nature. Because he recognizes that that's where his hope is, even in the midst of chastisement and judgment. So he chooses pestilence. Because he knows that the Lord will be merciful and gracious. So what's our takeaway? I would say I would say this. Sometimes even confessed sins has consequences. And sometimes those consequences extend even beyond us to those around us. But the Lord will be merciful. 
He'll be merciful. And so David comes before the Lord here. He confesses a sin, recognizing full well that he will face the consequences. But he's able to do that because he knows the Lord will be merciful to him. Well, we move on into verses 15 through 17 where we're going to see the Lord's judgment, but we're also going to see his mercy. We're going to see it play out, what David was expecting. Verse 15, so the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from morning until the appointed time, and 70,000 men of the people of Dan to Beersheba died. When the people stre- I'm sorry, when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented and the calamity, or from the calamity, and said to the angel who destroyed the people, It's enough! Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people and said, Behold, it is I who have sinned, and it is I who have done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Imagine that for a moment. I didn't catch that the first time I studied through this. David saw. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Watching God's chastisement take place and literally seeing the angel of the Lord standing as he's about to enter Jerusalem. And David's response is a broken heart, a contrite heart that cries out, I'm the one who sinned. These people, these sheep, they're innocent. I love the fact that he refers to him as sheep because it means he recognized the fact that he was the shepherd. And so he takes full responsibility for this here. I would say repents, if you will. Experiences remorse. But what do we see actually take place here? 70,000 men, it says, died. Now, the term people here and men is better understood as soldiers because that's what this is related to. Again, the census taking was for soldiers. That's the issue here is that David's, um, the pestilence is is only going to be poured out upon the soldiers and that's what you see here. And so the 70,000, in essence, what happened here is David lost 70,000 of his soldiers. Now, why is that important? Because that's the problem to start with. David, as he sees this enemy approach, immediately wants to count up his soldiers, script as many of his, as many of them as he, as he can. He includes likely the Levites in that and the Benjamites, the men under 20. And so the consequence is specifically the Lord says, I will take away from you those very things that think, you think make you strong. And so 70,000 soldiers have their lives taken. That's consistent with the law. Exodus chapter 30, the penalty for not following the rules of the military consensus results in a plague among military-age men. It seems that since David may have attempted to inflate the numbers of his military men by including the Levites and the Benjamites, the Lord reduced his actual army. In a crude sense, the penalty fits the crime. I have a question as I was reading through this. Was it right for the Lord to punish Israel for David's sin? We see stuff like that. Sometimes where we question, wow, how is that? Even David's own words are, they're innocent. I reference back to verse 1 of chapter 24. Israel was not innocent. That's why the Lord brought the enemies upon them. 
David identifies his sin as the cause of judgment against Israel, and he refers to Israel as innocent sheep. But we know they're not completely innocent. In fact, it says the anger's Lord burned against them. Again, I think David's sin was simply the catalyst. Simply the catalyst. But what do we really see in this? You know, we'd be remiss if we look at this as 70,000 people died. I think we need to see God's mercy here because what stands out to me is when the Lord watches this, He says, it's enough. Relax your hand. They've been taught the lesson that they needed to learn. It's not really clear why he spared Jerusalem. He might have been, you know, might have been moved by David's plea in verse 17. I think he might have spared Jerusalem because it was in Benjamin. Remember? Joab was upset because he knew he shouldn't have included the men of Benjamin in the census because Benjamin had been devastated. I think we see the Lord's hand in that here. As he gets to Jerusalem, which was the heart of Benjamin, he doesn't kill soldiers in Jerusalem, likely in Benjamin. His grace, his mercy, the very thing David should have extended them, the Lord himself does. So the Lord has compassion on them. So we see the Lord exercise his restraint, his mercy here. What's our takeaway? Um, Pretty simple. When it comes to God's people, his judgment or his chastisement is not without mercy. That's the great thing about the Lord, is when he exercises judgment and chastisement, it is always measured by mercy. It is never too much. It is never too little. It is exactly the right amount And the chastisement fits the crime. And I think the reason for that is the Lord is not interested in punishment. That's We tried to refrain from that um, when we were raising our own kids. We did not want to see our discipline. We did not want them to see the discipline as punishment, but rather chastisement, a a tool used to correct, to to endear them back to us. And I I really, I I used to watch our kids as we would spank them. We had this... um, Plan or pattern we would kind of use where we would explain to them what was about to happen, why it was about to happen, make sure they understood why it was wrong and what rule they had violated. We couldn't discipline them if they didn't know the rule existed or if they didn't know the rule they had violated. And so we would explain this to them. Then we would very slowly and methodically go through the spanking routine if that's what we did specifically. We had a little paint stick. I even wrote Mr. Spanky on it. <laughs> you know, but we would do that. And then afterwards... We didn't just end with, go to your room, but rather would make sure that we hugged them. We often would then pray with them. Why? It was all about trying to win their heart back. And one of the neat things I saw that I did not expect to see was how oftentimes their hearts would be so soft and tender after that. You know what's strange about that is, um, and this is not a knock on my parents, but my parents didn't discipline us that way. I don't believe my parents ever went overboard. But I just remember oftentimes when we would get you know, yelled at or we'd get spanked, it was go to your room, and I would go to my room angry at my parents. Upset. No, not rightly so. They did the right thing. But what I wanted for our kids was I wanted them to sense that this is love, this is goodness, this is mercy. And I, like I said, oftentimes we would see that the tears would come and you would see that there wasn't just, I mean, I got spanked for doing something wrong, 
but rather they genuinely understood what I did was wrong. That's the Lord. And so we see that in this passage where it was enough. He exercised mercy with the chastisement of Israel. One last thing I want us to see in this passage here before we get to our conclusion is what we find in verses 18 through 25. And this is where David offers up sacrifice to atone for sin and ultimately thank the Lord. Look at verse 18. It says, So Gad came to David that day and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Uran of the Jebusite. David went up according to the, the word of Gad, just as the Lord had commanded. Aruna looked down and saw the king and his servants crossing over the, uh, toward him, and Aruna went out and bowed his face to the ground before the king. Then Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be held back from the people. Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what is good in his sight. Look, the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for wood. Everything, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Verse 24, however, the king said to Aruna, no, I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will offer, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Thus the Lord was moved by prayer for the land and the plague was held back from Israel. So after David pleads with the Lord to save Israel, the Lord commands David through the prophet to go build an altar. It's time to worship. The purpose of the altar was to offer burnt offerings, which ultimately are the atonement for sin. Israel had sinned, David had sinned, and so the Lord asked him to make atonement for that sin. There's two parts to that. There's the burnt offering, which is the atonement, then there's the second part, which is the peace offerings. And that's ultimately um, where the two parties are brought back together. And so what we find in this passage here is the Lord restoring his relationship with Israel and with David. Atonement's been made for sin. Judgment has been measured out. Mercy has been extended. But beyond that, now it says the Lord actually was moved by the prayer of the land. He's hearing their prayers. He hasn't shut his ears to them. He's actually moved by them. He's listening now. I love the fact that David refused to accept all of this for free, meaning when Aruna offered him all the stuff, David's response was, no, there's got to be a cost involved. That's what atonement is. There's a cost involved with it. And David refused to go and offer up something to the Lord that did not cost him anything for his own sin. What's the takeaway? I would say this, the Lord desires restoration when we sin, and he ultimately still hears our prayers. 1 John 1.9 tells us that, doesn't it? We repeat this often here. When we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to purify us from our sins. I mean, ultimately, the Lord desires restoration. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So when he chastises us, the ultimate goal he wants is restoration, and we see that here play out, and it's in the sacrifice that David offers before him. Let me go ahead and wrap this up because there's something else here. I've tried to give us some takeaways from this. We need to always do things, you know, in the right way. Um, it's not okay to do the right thing in the wrong way. That's the reality of it. 
You know, and so the Lord expects us to do that. There's consequences for our, our sins. But when we face the consequences and we face God's judgment, there's always mercy and we should expect that. We should be able to say, I'm, I'm willing to place my hands under the Lord's care and chastisement here, face the consequences of my sin, knowing that the Lord will be gracious and merciful to me. But also know in the end that what he really wants is restoration. You know, I struggled for years with my own sin in the sense that I would always feel so guilty afterwards that I wouldn't even want to talk to God in prayer for a week or two. And I learned over the years that, you know what? No. Man, when I sin, the Lord knew it beforehand, knew I'm probably going to do it again. I'm struggling. I'm much like Paul. I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I don't want to do. I'm a wretched man. But thankfully in Christ, I've been redeemed, I've been saved. So when I sin, I confess to Him I should talk to him right away. I can't just avoid him for the next week or two, wallowing in my sin because the Lord desires restoration. We see that here. But we also see something else here. This is a great way to wrap up this book because we've seen this throughout the book. I've continued to remind us that David is a type of Christ. And I think it's fascinating that this book ends with David as a type of Christ because it represents something to us. Take a look at this. We know that David represents Christ as a priest for us. Now, this is not a perfect example because none of the types in the Old Testament are perfect. David was not a sinless man, but he still represented Christ. He still sinned, even though Christ was sinless. So it's not a perfect typing or representation, but it exists because David is still to be a foreshadowing, a type of Christ. So it's not a perfect example, but imagine this. David, in this passage, served as a mediator between Israel and the Lord. Notice that he goes to the Lord. The Lord is about ready to chastise Israel. David is put in this position of choosing the consequences. And David then intercedes on behalf of Israel. When the chastisement and judgment begins, David stands up and says, Lord, I'm the one. They're the sheep. I'm the shepherd. David is acting as a mediator there between God and Israel as God is judging Israel. Isn't that what Christ is? We're told that he's our mediator. 1 Timothy chapter 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man. Who is it? The man, Jesus Christ. David here, as mediator between God and Israel, serves as a type of Christ. Our mediator between us and God. Notice, too, that David makes atonement for Israel's sin, just as Jesus Christ made atonement for us. He goes up, he refuses to accept the free gifts, and instead buys them. It costs him something. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says, He, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. So David makes atonement for Israel's sin third point here is that David refused to make that sacrifice to be, unless it cost him something. Gee, does that sound familiar? Philippians chapter 2.8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, what? To the point of death. Even death on a cross. So we see once again reflected in David that this cost David something. It didn't cost him his life, but it did cost him something. He drives that point home in the text when he's talking to the man that he bought the field from or the threshing floor. And we see that Christ, the same thing. What made Christ's atonement just that was the fact that it cost him everything. It cost him his life. The last point here is David's sacrifice actually removed Israel's guilt and restored peace between them and God. 
Sound familiar? Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Doesn't end there. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the parallels there. David is a type. I love the fact that this book ends on this note, reminding us this is a picture of Christ. All of this is. And so David, throughout this whole entire book, has served us well in reminding us of of who we have in Christ. It's a great way to end the book.